0: Hello, everyone. Good to have you this evening. Welcome to Activate Church, uh, our Bible Supper, which, which is like our Bible study. And I'm excited today because today we have a special guest, my friend, all the way from Dingo Church in Liverpool. I'm so excited he's joining us this evening. Now we have a subject that he's going to dissect and you know speak to us on today. Now, if you're connected and um, you, you know someone that would um, benefit from today's um, meeting, I would love you to just share the link that you have already and get them to hop on on Zoom because um, when pastor K is done. He's going to take questions and we're going to have like an interaction. Ask questions. He will answer the questions. I'm also here to answer questions because it's one subject that if you're a Christian I believe you should know or rather you should be grounded on so you would not be carried away like Paul said by every wind of doctrine. I'm pastor B. Of Activate Church, and I'm about going to introduce my friend, Pastor Oke Unadike. He's the lead pastor of Bengal Church in Liverpool. He's um, a vast theologian, a graduate of the Luthers School of Theology. He's um, also married to Dr. Nikki, and they have two sons. Pastor K has been pastoring for over two decades. So that should give you a little bit of an idea of how vast he is in this subject. And I'm going to throw the platform open for him to speak to us. He's going to talk to us 20, 30, or maybe 40 minutes. And as he's speaking, please mute your mic, get your notebook, get your pen, make notes. When he's done, ask questions. Ask questions questions and I trust it's going to be a very very interesting session. So Pastor K thanks for accepting our invitation. Thanks for accepting our invite. <laughs> uh we'll love you to just take it off from here.
1: for us to get deeper into the Word of God and um, ask ourselves deeper questions of the text. And that's why tonight, is, um, I think, is a very important um, uh, one for us. And for those, like you said, who uh, may be listening to us on Facebook or on Zoom here tonight or wherever you are listening, um, or YouTube, um, if you've got any questions, always feel free to um, uh, send your questions through at the end. Uh, so that we can um, uh, see if we can answer it. So tonight, um, as Pastor Roby has already said, I'll be dealing with the subject of um, the law. And um, I think the title for this event is, um, uh, Has the law been abolished? Or if you want to say the law has been abolished, and we want to examine what that means Uh, for us um, tonight. Now this subject um, that we have before us, uh, for me personally, is a very interesting one, uh, because it's a subject that actually deals with God's dealings uh, with His people, right from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And how you handle this uh, subject will, to a great extent, uh, reveal whether you understand the full ramifications of the work of Christ Jesus on the cross and how that knowledge then impacts on your expression of freedom and liberty uh, that you have in Christ uh, Jesus. I'll start by taking us to the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians is one of those uh, letters that Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians. And what Paul actually does in the first few verses of chapter three is that Paul launches what I would call his caving attack on the Galatians. And it's all about justification by faith and we know that popular expression that Paul used in the book of Galatians. He says to them, All foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Those who started the journey of faith and understanding the place of grace, all of a sudden has perfected themselves in the law. And so Paul was trying to show them something about the law, and not just the law, but also the place of grace in their newfound Um, faith, which is I think very important for us because sometimes uh, the Spirit of God can look at a church, look at a Christian and say who has bewitched you uh, that you've actually fallen from grace and it's like you've embraced the law in such a way that you've forgotten about the liberty and freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, So tonight what I will do is try to deal with this um, question of the law being abolished uh, using what I would call foundational uh, building blocks and i'm going to draw from my days of um, uh, civil engineering Uh, every good engineer or builder knows that there's a good place for a foundation and the structure or whatever you're building is as good or as strong as the foundation upon which it rests so if we are going to understand this whole concept of the law and the christian And whether the law has been abolished or fulfilled in Christ Jesus, then of necessity, we have to understand the foundational doctrines or lay a good foundation uh, before we begin to build anything on it. So I'll be using what I call building blocks tonight. So lay the foundation and then we'll put the blocks on top of it. And there are four building blocks i'm going to use tonight just to guide our train of thought and to help us grasp this concept and the first building block will be looking at the old testament and the christian the old testament and the christian and the second building block that we are going to use tonight is looking at the role of the law in the christian life so keep that at the back of your mind the old testament law and the christian the role of the law in the Christian life. And then the third building block, we're going to be looking at what we call the case laws and their penalty today and how that impacts us. And then finally, we'll look at the principle of what we call continuing relevance. And what I mean by the principle of continuing relevance is how do we determine what continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament with respect to the law or those things that we can truly say that has Uh, Been abolished. So those are the four foundational building blocks we are going to use tonight, and then we will build on that. So let's start with the first building block, which is the Old Testament law and the Christian. The Old Testament law and the Christian. And for us to understand the Old Testament law and the Christian, we are going to establish at least four statements of fact, what I call statements of fact. Because if you lay a foundation, everyone that sees it knows that this is a foundation. We don't argue against the foundation. And the same thing with the doctrines of the teachings of the scriptures. There are what you call foundational doctrines, things that when we see them, we know, and then we can build on those um, foundational uh, doctrines. And so when it comes to the Old Testament law and the Christian, The first statement of fact that we all should adhere to or hold on to ourselves is that for us as Christians today, we are not under the old covenant law. Now that's the first statement of fact. You are not under the old covenant law. I am not under the old covenant law. Uh, When Paul was uh, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 6 verse 14, Paul actually says something, and I think it's a very important verse of Scripture uh, for us to have at the back of our mind tonight. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, sin no longer is your master. He says, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law, but instead you live under the freedom of God's grace. So listening to what Paul says in that verse of Scripture, so it seems that Paul is saying that there is something about the law that gives us a knowledge of sin and also, of course, keeps us in bondage But then, because we've come into a wonderful relationship with Jesus, it says you now live under the freedom of God's grace. So it's bondage as opposed to freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So that's why it's a statement of fact that we all have to hold there to ourselves. And as Christians today, we are not under the old covenant law. But then when you follow Paul again to the book of Corinthians, and Paul has a lot to say in the book of writing to the Corinthian Christians, and in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, if you read from verses um, 20 down to verse uh, 21, and I love the way Paul, in his attempt to reach out to uh, the Corinthian Christians and to the Gentiles and those who are not part of the old covenant law, Now, I had to do something, which some of us might find a little bit worrying, but I want you to see what Paul is doing, because when you read from verse 20, Paul says something. He said, when I was with the Jews, he says, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, listen to what he says he did again. He says, I too lived under that law. So he was making reference to the Jewish law. He says, even though I am not subject to the law. So Paul is saying in essence, because he has come into this relationship with Jesus, he's not under the law. So that is the statement of fact, I am not under that old covenant law. but because I have to win those who are not part of the new of, of, of the faith, he says, I live like I'm under that, that law. But then look at the second part of that verse of Scripture, which is also very important. And it says, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. He says, when I'm with the Gentiles, so you see he goes from being with the Jews now and says, when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law. he says, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But the crucial part of that verse of Scripture says, this: it says, but I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So three things Paul mentions in that verse of Scripture, in those two verses of Scripture. He talks about the Jewish law, he talks about the law of God, and he also talks about the law of Christ. And so Paul is saying there that the law of Christ actually presents to us more or less like, gives us a higher ethic to live by, a moral ethic to live by. So in fulfilling the law of Christ, I'm not ignoring the law of God even though sometimes I obey some of those Jewish laws. So there's something that Paul is getting us to see there. Number one, uh, we are not under the old covenant law, but at the same time, we don't ignore the law of God. But he says there is a higher law, and that is the law of Christ. And if, you're, if you follow him again to the book of Galatians, actually in Galatians, is a very important verse of Scripture. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18, Listen again to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, but when you are directed by the Spirit of Christ, he says, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. That word obligation is very important. If I'm obliged to do something, that means I am bound to do it. I'm of, By necessity, it's something that I have to do. So, Paul says, when you are directed by the Spirit, and of course, as new creation Christians, we are directed by the Spirit of God. And so, Paul says, you are not under the obligation of the law. So, what does that mean for you as a Christian? What does it mean for me as a Christian? It simply means that, in part, that the Mosaic law, what we know as the Mosaic law, is no longer the direct and immediate guide or judge Of the conduct of God's people. Now, note the words I use. It is not the immediate guide or the direct guide for the judgment of conduct of God's people. And I think that is very important, and we are going to come to that as we go along in our lesson. So, that's the first fact that we need to establish, that we are no longer under the covenant of of the old law, is no longer the direct or immediate judge of our conduct. But when we come to the second fact that we need to establish tonight, which is still under the first building block, and that is the age of what you call the Mosaic Law Covenant has come to an end in Christ Jesus. So, which means that the law as we know it in the Mosaic Law, in the Old Covenant, has ceased from having a central, or what you might call, a determinative role among us people. So note those words again, central and determinative, which means it no longer determines how we relate to God. It no longer determines how we come to Jesus Christ by faith. When you look at the people of God in the Old Covenant in Israel and in the Old Testament, The law, the Mosaic law, was central to all of their activities. It determined how they worshipped. It determined how they lived. It determined their relationship with the authorities and everything about their lives. We are bound up in that law. And you wonder why Paul, in Romans chapter 10, actually had to say this. When you go to verse 4 in Romans chapter 10, very interesting verse of Scripture Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. And Paul actually gives us the reason why the age of the Mosaic Law Covenant has come to an end in Christ. He says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So Paul is saying it's not just about the law itself. There's a purpose, there's a reason why the law was given. And so Paul is saying, because you have come into a relationship with Jesus, that means that the purpose of the law, so there's a purpose for which that law was given. And sometimes as Christians, what we do is we lose sight of the reason why the law was given, and that's when we become, as we call it, legalistic which the law was given, and as a result, so this is the outcome, all those who believe in Him are made right with God. There are so many other scriptures. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter 3, you read from verses 4 down to verse 18, you see Paul wrestling with the subject of the law and the new covenant, trying to get God's people to see the implications and what it means for their faith. If you go again to Galatians chapter 3, there's a whole lot of this in the book of Galatians, actually, and you read from verse 15 up to chapter 4 two verse 7, you see Paul again dealing with the law in relation to God's promise. So, there's something important that Paul, or what I, call, what I call the statements of fact that Paul is laying, and all he's saying is that the Mosaic law covenant has come to an end in Christ. So, but I want us to have this at the back of our mind, which is very important, because although the law does not have that determinative role among us people, yet the law of Moses is still very important. Sometimes when we say that the law does not have a determinative role or central role, some people feel, well, if that's the case, then the law is no longer important. But actually, the law is still important for us as Christians. Because what it does is it provides us what you call a prophetic witness to Christ. And also it clarifies the character of God and how deep and wide love for God and neighbor, how actually deep it goes as we relate and and, and witness to people. Because when you look at the whole biblical narrative, everything points to Jesus. All the things and the types and the shadows and all that we have in the Old Testament is actually pointing to Jesus Christ. And so that's why I said it's important for us because it gives us what you call a prophetic witness. And that is very important as we examine the law. The third statement of fact, very important for us to hold as part of our foundation tonight. Now, why Christians are not legally bound to the Mosaic law, we do not throw out the law itself. Now, I think this is very important. It's a statement of fact which, that helps us to understand the subject tonight. While Christians are not legally bound to the Mosaic Law, as we've seen with the two statements of fact that I've just made, we do not throw the law out in itself. Sometimes when we see those scriptures that talk about freedom in Christ Jesus, the liberty that we have, we are no longer under the old covenant. Some Christians then come to a conclusion and say, well, if that's the case, then that means that um, we throw the law out itself, or we have the spirit of what you call antinomianism, which is a rejection of every aspect of the law, even the moral aspects of that law. But there's a scripture I'm going to show you in the book of Deuteronomy. You can read this for yourself, or you can make note of this. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you go to verse 6 and verse 8, you see Moses doing something in those verses. And in Deuteronomy, Moses was actually predicting that a day would come when God's people will be circumcised in their hearts and they will be empowered with love. And so as a result, God's people would then hear Yahweh's voice and keep all the commandments that Moses gave them. Look at verse 6. If you've got a Bible, but I can quote that to you, it says that the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. But verse 8 then says, then you will again obey the Lord and keep all his commandments that I'm giving you today. So can you see what Moses is doing? Moses is predicting and saying a day is going to come when our hearts will be circumcised. And the essence of the circumcision of the heart is that we will now in turn obey the laws. So you can see that though, even while Moses lived and was speaking about things to come, he was not completely saying that the law does not have any importance in the life of the Israelites. He's saying God will circumcise your heart. God will give you a new heart to then obey him and so the new heart leads to obedience to the laws of God and some of you might say well we've been looking at the old testament verses here why not look at something from the new testament in terms of the words of jesus now let's go to jesus christ and i'm going to read a verse of scripture here to you when you go to matthew chapter 5 remember that jesus had a lot of issues with the scribes and the pharisees in matthew chapter 5 in verse 17, down to verse 19, Jesus tells us the reason why he came. And don't forget, as part of his battle with the scribes and the Pharisees, it's always been about the legal aspects of the law, all the rituals. And Jesus was trying to get them to see there was something more important than the external rituals, the cleansings. But he, was come, he has come as a fulfillment of that law. And so when you get to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus then says this. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish. Aha, and that's the word that we've been dealing with tonight, isn't it? He said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. He says, no, I came to accomplish their purpose And he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is accomplished. So can you see Jesus going back again to the purpose of the law? Just like Paul mentioned, there's a reason why the law was given. And Jesus clearly says it here. He says, this is not the reason why I have come. I've not come to abolish. Actually, the word abolish in the Greek is the word katalo and what it means is to destroy to do away completely with something jesus says that's not the reason why i've come but what i've come is to accomplish a very important greek word again which is the greek word plerō. which simply means to give true meaning to something to provide real significance to something So, when we look at the law through the eyes of Jesus, what we're actually seeing is someone who has come to give true meaning to the law. Someone who has come to provide real significance to the law, because the law has got a purpose. And Jesus is saying that not until heaven and earth disappear, he says, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, it's only when you, we consider the impact that Christ's work on the cross has on any given law can we begin to consider the lasting significance of that law for believers. So, we're not just saying we are looking at the laws and, 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 um, and trying to make sense of the laws outside of Christ. What we are saying is, just like we've mentioned, that everything is pointing towards Christ. So, when we consider the impact that Christ's sacrificial work on the cross has on any given law, that's when we can then begin to consider the lasting significance of that law for all believers. And with that in mind, Paul then in Romans chapter 13 begins to say something about love as a fulfillment of all the law. In Romans chapter 13, uh, this is from verses 8 down to verse 10, very lovely verse of Scripture where. Paul says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and he says that love then becomes the fulfillment of the law. And I want you to think about why Paul said that, why love then becomes the fulfillment of the law. Because when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's split up, you know, five, five, and the first five you see there is like our duty towards God, and another five, our duty towards man. And love is what underguards or helps us in terms of obeying or accomplishing the purpose of that law. If I love my friend or my neighbor, I'm not going to kill him. If I love my friend, I'm not going to steal his wife. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to covet what he has. If I love God, I will not have any other God aside him. And so when you look at love as an expression of the fulfillment of all the law, you can see and then understand why Paul is saying that love then becomes the fulfillment of the law. So what then is the role of the law in the Christian life if love has then become the fulfillment of the law? And that's why we then go to the second building block that we want to look at tonight, and which is the role of the law in the christian life and for us to now understand the role of the law in the christian life because don't forget law is the love is the fulfillment of that law so if it's been fulfilled then you might be wondering so what then is the role of the law in the christian life to understand this i will take you to the book of exodus and in exodus Sometimes we, uh, we look at Exodus and there are sections in the book of Exodus, we call them uh, the book of the covenant, and that is the second section of the book of Exodus, which starts from chapters 19 uh, down to uh, chapters 24. And there you have the oldest law collection in the Pentateuch, which is the five books that we call the five books of, um, of Moses. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Now, while many Christians, many of us here tonight, we believe that there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't think there's anyone here tonight uh, who will um, say that there's no difference between the old and the new. In fact, sometimes we can go as far as saying is a difference between law and grace. Now, there's, a tr- there's some truth in that, but I wouldn't want to press that too far. Because when you look at the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law actually was given within the context of grace. So we don't have to draw a hard line and say, well, it's law and grace there was no grace in the old testament what we have in the new testament is actually a the fullness of grace in the new testament so every single one of course we believe there's a difference old testament new testament but i don't think that many christians believe that you have to observe all the old testament laws in their fullness i don't think there's anyone in this meeting tonight who believes that that you have to observe all the old testament laws in its fullness on the other hand not many christians will say that there is no divine law that is relevant for us today so i want you to understand where i'm going we know there's a difference between the old and the new many of us we believe that we don't have to observe all the old testament laws in their fullness but at the same time Not many of us would say that there is no divine law in the Old Testament that is relevant for us today. I'll give you an example, something like murder, you know, you killing someone, which is um, proscribed by the Sixth Commandment. is universally accepted or recognized as wrong by Christians even though we may debate or what, of, or what constitutes murder, the debate can rage on and on, but the reality is that we all believe that you don't have to kill. Murder is wrong. But I want you to contrast this with a verse of Scripture in Exodus. I've got my Bible here, and I'm going to just make reference to this. If you go to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 19, still within the book of the covenant where you have the laws written. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 19, he says something which most of us will find as being irrelevant, a law that is irrelevant. And he says there, you must not, and this is, sometimes when I read it, I find it quite funny. You must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Exodus 23, 19. Now we see that verse of scripture to be irrelevant and so the question then that arises from just one chapter is that within one chapter you see that there are laws that we seem to accept as being relevant, and other laws that we seem to accept that uh, disagree and say, no, this isn't any more relevant uh, to us. So the question then is what makes one Old Testament law relevant and another one irrelevant? Are there principles involved, or is it simply a matter of modern taste? Because we live in the 21st century, uh, then we can you know choose what is relevant for us or choose what has been fulfilled and what has been accomplished. A good example is those who belong to the transgender and the you know the homosexual camp will tell you. Uh, that, um, well, this is the 21st century, so when you see scriptures that talk about a man, lying with a man in the Old Testament, uh, that is all done, uh, God is done with all that, and we're in the New Testament, so uh, we have to uh, live in a different, and, and so the question then is what what principles are involved in choosing or determining what Old Testament laws are relevant and the ones that are not relevant? And to answer that, it then takes us to the third building block that we are using to build our case tonight, which is looking at the case laws and their penalties today. And so you have to ask yourself this question, that how do the laws that you have in the book of Exodus, how do they apply to us today? And we know that by looking at the laws in Exodus, they come from an ancient Near Eastern society and we today live in a modern Western society. So, do the laws have any relevance for us? It's just like something written hundreds of years ago, and you're asking yourself the question today, what relevance does that have for us? But looking at the New Testament and the words of Jesus, you see that the New Testament clearly affirms that the purpose of the law continues to apply today. And that's why Jesus said it clearly that until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So the New Testament is clear on that, that the purpose of the law continues to apply. So we're not just talking about the law itself. We are talking about the purpose. That means the reason why that law was given. And sometimes as Christians, we get hung up on the law itself. But not asking ourselves, what is the purpose? Why was this law given? Now, I'm going to give us another example. None of us here will doubt the continuing significance of the Ten Commandments. We all will agree that the Ten Commandments still applies to us today. Thou shall not kill honor your, your, your parents, um, you, you don't have to commit adultery, theft, lying, uh, coveting, and all of that, it still remains a requirement uh, for those who want to uh, please God. But there's only one exception when you look at the laws, and that is the Sabbath. Hopefully we will come uh, to that. So we all believe that those laws in itself or in the purpose of the law still applies to us. But on the other hand, few of us, will believe that the case law that we have in Exodus 23, 19, that I just read to us, uh, that says that you don't have to cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Many of us would say that doesn't apply, that is irrelevant, and that is like a case law. So, what are these case laws in the Bible, and what are their implications? Now, case laws, uh, I will try and explain this so that you can understand it. When we talk about case laws in the Bible, we are talking about simply laws that you can use the application of their principles gotten from the Ten Commandments and then apply them to the specific social and historical redemptive situation of God's people. So you're more or less looking at the principle. Sorry sorry to cut you short, can you repeat that? The, the, The case law is what? Yeah, the case laws are applications of the principles of the Ten Commandments. To what you call the specific social and redemptive historical situation of God's people. So what you're doing is you're looking at the Ten Commandments or the laws or the case laws, which are these examples I've just cited, like do not cook a goat in his mother's milk. It's a law, but you're looking at it and you're saying, but what is the principle? What is God getting at? And so you're taking that principle and you're applying it to the specific social and redemptive historical situation of the people of God. Because as Christians or as God's people, we know that we live in a different social and redemptive um, historical moment. We live at a time when Jesus Christ already came. He, He came to our world. He died. He ascended to heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit. So we live in a different social and redemptive historical moment. And so that tells us that because we live in a different social and redemptive historical moment, we have to look for principles, even within those case laws, that we feel are relevant for us. A good example here is, um, I can show us a few, actually from the book of um, um, Exodus, uh, because we know, like I said, Jesus Christ already has come and died. We no longer celebrate the, uh, what you call the three annual festivals. And those festivals were simply trying to help us uh, to commemorate the Old Testament redemptive events and anticipation of the coming of Christ. That's what they were. It's like types and shadows. So, Jesus Christ has already come. And so, in a way, we don't have to celebrate those festivals you find in Exodus 23. Maybe you read from verses 14 to verse 18. Something Another example, again, we can go to. This one I actually find it quite um, interesting in Exodus chapter 20. If you go to Exodus chapter 20 and from verses 24 uh, to verse uh, 26, there you have the law about the altar, you know, when you're building an altar. And you look at that law in Exodus, and God was telling His people that you don't, when you build me uh, an altar and you build, make stairs on it, and, and it's quite an interesting law when you come to think about it. But when you look at it, you, you will agree that that law is irrelevant in itself as a case law because we don't build altars today. And the prohibition you have in that verse of Scripture not to have stairs at the altar is also doubly irrelevant uh, because that law uh, was actually meant to keep Israel from mimicking the customs of the Canaanites, or even having a hint of them during their uh, sacred observances. So, which is an issue that is no longer relevant for us as Christians, but it's still within the law. So, some we see as relevant and we we obey them. We still take heed to them, but the others we are looking at them and asking ourselves, well. This is a case law here. So, but is there a principle that I can take from the case law and then apply it to my social, historical, redemptive situation of God's people uh, today? And I think that is where sometimes as Christians, we miss it. Those case laws can provide us guidance. Even as we seek to apply the Ten Commandments like I said, to our social and redemptive historical situation. And I'll give us a few examples just to buttress the point I've just made. If you think of the goring ox, you know, in the, uh, the law about the ox, that um, if you own an ox and you don't look after your ox and he goes out and kills someone, the Bible tells us what to do. This is in, the, of course, the Old Testament. Now, is a case law, but the question is, what is the principle of that law. Now, the case law, the goring ox, may not apply because none of us in this meeting have owns an ox. But the principle can warn us that those who commit what you call negligent homicide are responsible for their actions. In the same way, the man who fails to look after his ox or keep it in check he goes out and kills someone. So God is saying to us, the case law may not apply. But the principle still applies. And that's why today, in an inner city, maybe we see this all the time, those who have um, dogs or bulldogs or pit bulls and they don't keep them on a leash, it goes out and kills someone. They don't get away with it because the reality is that that is negligent homicide. You should look after your dog. You should put it on a leash. And so if something goes wrong, then the law holds you responsible. In the same way, if you own a car, you should do an MOT. You don't drive off if you know that your brakes are bad. If that happens, the law holds you responsible. Negligent homicide if you kill someone as a result. So you can see that the case law, we say, well, it doesn't apply to us. But the essence is that God is saying to you, there is a principle that actually still applies. So, yes, Jesus may have abolished the law in itself, but in principle, there is something that you can take from those case laws that seems irrelevant and then apply it to your social, specific, historic, redemptive situation that we have found ourselves in. Let's go back to that, um, the case law of cooking um, a young goat in his mother's milk. I always refer to it because, like I said, sometimes it doesn't make sense But you know that there's a principle in that law? Now, God was trying to keep His people from imitating the ways of the Canaanites or importing their practices into their worship system. That's what the Canaanites did. That's what the nations that never knew Yahweh as their God, that was part of their practice. And God was trying to preserve the purity of His own people by saying to them, that's not how you are called to leave, So the principle from that case law is very simple, that it warns us as Christians about the danger of importing the practices of false religions into our own worship. So when you read it, don't cook a young goat in his mother's milk. You'll laugh and flip over to another page, but actually you've missed something. The law may be abolished because it's not relevant for you, but in reality the principle still applies because when we look into our churches today we see practices we see new age spirituality gradually coming into our churches we see what i call pentecostal witchcraft creeping into our churches there's quite a lot going into our churches but yet we look at the laws and we say well it's irrelevant but god is saying you've missed the point there's a purpose there is a principle that you're supposed to take from that law. Now, where we have a bit of a problem, as I begin to tie this together, is when we come to the relevance of the penalties of the law, it's a bit more difficult to assess because when you look at the Old Testament, the the, the, the punishment is quite severe. And so some people look at that and say, well, you don't have to, that it has nothing to do with the New Testament anymore. But what I always say is you have to bear, having this, bear this point in mind, or important fact, you have to keep this in mind. Because in the Old Testament, the law was directed to God's people when they had the form of a nation state. And as a nation state, God's people were to remain pure, and therefore penalties had a physical form. So serious criminals had to be removed physically. While on the other hand, God's people today, that is the church, we don't have a physical form. We have a spiritual form because the church is drawn from many nations and its weapons are not physical, but spiritual. So instead of dragging a sinner out of the church and stoning him in the car park, we don't do that. But rather what we do is the Bible talks about excommunication. So, if there's a heretic in your church or someone who is bent on destroying the church, the church has the power to remove the person from their midst. So in that way, the covenant community of God's people still remains pure. Just the same way in the Old Testament, because Israel uh, had a physical form, sinners or those who commit serious crime had to be removed physically. In the same way for us in the New Testament, we don't kill them, we don't stone anyone to death, but we also purge the body of Christ. So you can see the same principle at work, but being applied in different ways. And so that brings us to the last building block of what we are looking at tonight, which is the principle then of continuing relevance. So just a little recap. We've already seen that, of course, the Ten Commandments does provide ethical principles that we can apply to specific situations in those case laws, and we've already seen that those case laws are directly relevant to Israel but may not continue to be relevant as a guide to God's will for His people in the 24th century that we live in. So for us to understand the principle of continuing relevance, which means what is continuous or what has been continued we have to look at the law under three broad sections, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And when you look at the moral law, what the moral law is are laws that regulate human conduct, how Israel ought to behave themselves. And many of the case laws, some of the examples I've given to us are classified as moral. For instance, if you kidnap someone In the Old Testament, you may be put to death, whether you are caught in possession of your victim or not, which is simply an application of the commandment not to steal. So the moral laws, we are regulating human conduct. And then you have the civil laws. And what the civil laws do is to regulate the government of Israel. And then you have the ceremonial or what you call the ritual laws. And these are laws that pertain to the formal worship of Israel. And you find them, there are loads of examples. You have them in Exodus chapter um, 20. I've got my Bible here, but I'm not going to read it because of our time. But for some, if you want to read it, Exodus chapter 20, go from verse 20 to 26. There you have the laws that have to do with the the festivals, the unleavened bread, uh, the harvest, the final harvest, and um, the laws concerning the sacrifice and all the offerings. Now, all those are ceremonial laws. But for us as Christians, because we stand from where you, what you might call a vantage point, we can see that some of certain laws that we are linked with the rituals, we are fulfilled by Christ, and these laws are no longer actively observed. So they become irrelevant for us. A good example, we say that Christ is a once and for all sacrifice. So we no longer offer sacrifices For them, it was a ritual, but we can see its fulfillment in Christ. So that ceremonial civil law has, part of it has been, as we know, is completely fulfilled in Christ. We know that Christ is the very presence of God. And after his ascension, he sent his Holy Spirit into our world. And so because of that, we no longer build tabernacles or temples or construct altars. Talk about the priesthood. We also know that it's an institution that Jesus Christ fulfilled. We talk about ceremonial time. We also see that Jesus Christ actually fulfilled ceremonial time. So we no longer observe the annual festivals or the Sabbath. But when you come to the Sabbath, I've just mentioned that, that's the only place we have a little bit of a problem. Because as you look into the New Testament, you will see that actually Paul got to a place in this is when he was writing to the Colossian Christians. And what Paul did in Colossians chapter 2 was to tell them how Jesus Christ became a fulfillment of the Sabbath. And if you look at Colossians chapter 2, I'm just going to read this to us from verse 16 down to verse 17. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says that he says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or what you drink. He says, or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moons, ceremonies, or Sabbath. He says, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So, you can see that Paul clearly believes that the commandment to observe the Sabbath is no longer binding on the conscience of the Christian. So, when I look at the Sabbath laws, it appears that the Sabbath law should be considered a ceremonial law within the Ten Commandments, and so is a law that has been affected by the coming of Christ, who fulfilled Israel's rituals, showing that it was the shadow of the reality of Christ himself. So, we don't observe the Sabbath as they did during the Old Testament time period, because actually, if you want to be honest with yourself, it's not sun- Sabbath is not a Sunday. And so, we understand that. So, it's not a matter of legal obligation not to go to work on the Sabbath for us as Christians. But when you look at that Sabbath law, you ask yourself again what is the principle and the principle we have to bear in mind is this that God created us with bodies and minds that need periodic rest and none of us here can work 24 hours a day seven days a week or even eight hours a day and not have diminishing returns on our labor so it's a matter of wisdom to observe rest periodically But much more than that, we are called as Christians as well to gather together to worship God, not just individual worship, but collectively as a group of people. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, it tells us, not forsaking the assembling of yourself together. So it's important for that gathering. So after we have gathered, after we have observed maybe that day of rest, which is important for us as Christians. So, whether you then go out to eat or play tennis or watch football or enjoy some time with your friend or even you do a little work, is a matter of individual conscience. And so, nobody should condemn you because of that, because in essence, like I said, it is the principle of the Sabbath that you are applying, not obeying the letter of the law. So, the conclusion then for us is this while we know that God does not change. God is unchangeable, we know that. But we can see that His laws are not always the same from generation to generation. The changes we have are not because God is fickle in what He wants from us, but rather because His people change over time, and because His work of redemption progresses from age to age. So, that calls for Christians, that calls for you, that calls for me, to then use our sanctified intelligence, or if you want to call it your Christ-transformed conscience, call it whatever you will, but make sure that what you're doing is you're using a well-informed hermeneutic and then seeking God's will within the law as you seek to apply the principles of that law to your day-to-day living. What I always do is this, and I'm going to close with that and hand over to Pastor Roby. I always follow what I call um, a three-step process in establishing the lasting significance of any Old Testament law for for my life today or for any Christian. And what I do is, number one, first of all, what I do is I try to determine what type of law is this. Remember, we mentioned the ceremonial, we mentioned the civil, uh, and we mentioned the moral. And much of the ceremonial has been fulfilled. Much of the other laws has been fulfilled. It's actually the moral laws that are still binding on us today, that we take their principles and then apply them to a specific situation. So I'll try as much as possible to determine the law's type, the original meaning, the significance, and the purpose of that law. And then the second thing I always do is I try to determine the theological significance of that law. And in doing that, I'm looking for what that law tells me about God and His ways. I'm assessing how Christ's fulfillment of that law impacts on my present situation. And at the same time, I'm stating maybe in a single sentence the love principle behind that law. Maybe that love already is a fulfillment of that particular law. If I love God truly with the whole of my heart, That law may not be relevant anymore because I'm actually fulfilling that law through love. And then the last thing I do is I try as much as possible to preserve both the portrait of God and that love principle behind the law, but then I change the context all in the light of Christ's new covenant work in my life today as a new new covenant believer. And if you pass any law through these lenses, these three things I've mentioned, what type of law is it? The original meaning of that law is significance. Trying to understand the theological significance of that law, what it tells you about God, how Christ fulfilled, how Christ coming into our world impacts of that law. And then also preserving the portrait of God, the love principle, but then changing the context and how you apply that law, you discover that when the question is asked, has the law been abolished? Your answer will be, it depends on what you mean. The law in itself has a purpose. And the purpose of the law is to bring us to a place where we recognize that we have come into a new covenant with Jesus Christ. And we are not bound or held bound by the old covenant, but rather we've been set free from the old covenant. We have freedom in Christ, but then we apply the principles that we have and the things that God has revealed to us into our social, historical, redemptive situation, and that is where we find freedom in our day-to-day living. So I'm going to hand over to Pastor Roby. I think I've talked them him for, for quite a while now, and I'd um, like to hear what he has to say uh, from what we've... Um, <laughs> from what we've um, looked at. It's a subject where we can spend weeks on, but I've tried as much as possible uh, to condense it in, um, in 30, 35 or so minutes.
0: That's exactly what I wanted to say. I was like, yeah, I mean, what you just did to us in, 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 the, in the past 40 minutes, oh my God, we need weeks. And that is the truth. 40 minutes is insufficient to really grasp the entirety of this subject wow 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 god bless you pastor okay wow this is this is amazing this is amazing i mean this is amazing and it's very very insightful (laughs) okay while we wait while we wait for those that have something to say or contribute i've got one or two questions i've got one or two questions um it's not like taking you back but as I ask the question, you throw more light on it. First question: Has the law, okay, has all the law been fulfilled? So, we could say that the ceremonial laws have somewhat been fulfilled by Christ. The civil laws, to some extent, like you said, Israel was a a nation-state and all that, but the church is not a nation-state. Rather, we are, yes, we are a spiritual form. Um, So, when it comes to the church, you could also say that... uh, um, the civil law—I don't want to say has been fulfilled, but not it does not really, um, well, I say affect the church. But, but I'll say this: as you well know, a lot of nations, like the UK where we are, America, and several other European nations, um, wrote or conceived their constitution from these civil laws in the Bible. So, though the civil law does not affect the church, like you said beautifully, that the church is a spiritual entity, but it somewhat through the laws of our nation affects us as citizens of that nation. Must be the crime. And there's something you said when you were teaching that I wish everybody got. You talked about the principle behind the law. And I think that is so, so relevant to this discourse. Because until we you understand the principle, I always put it this way, until you understand the why. Until you understand the why. When you know the why for this law, you understand where God or Moses is coming from. When when they gave that law, so following my train of thoughts from the beginning, so if the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled by Christ, the moral, the civil laws are still enforced through the government of our nation. but the moral law has not been abolished; is still in force. Everyone, if we, if you're a Christian and you belong to the body of Christ, which is the church, you are bound by that moral law. And if you are not a Christian, you're also bound by the moral law, though it is effect. You might not believe in its effects or its consequences, but you are bound by the moral law.